Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. The iconic score for director John Carpenter's Halloween was written by Carpenter himself in just three days. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the iconic slasher score for John Carpenter's Halloween, an independent film from Compass International from 1978, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, produced by Deborah Hill, directed by John Carpenter, with a score by, well, what do you know, John Carpenter. Confession time, horror movies like Halloween are not always my cup of tea. I I honestly, I scare too easily. Don't get me wrong. As a kid, I watched Nightmare on Elm Street movies, American Werewolf in London, um, portions of Friday the 13th that I was brave enough to sit through before changing the channel. But look, even Michael Jackson's thriller gave me legitimate nightmares as a kid. So just a fair warning, Halloween is a scary movie that of course has mature content, just so you know. But horror films like Halloween are unique and wonderful to discuss when it comes to music because it's the music that, in my opinion, is almost solely responsible for all of the scares. Yes, the visuals could be terrifying, the editing, the lighting, the script, the acting, they all have to work. But if you don't have the right music, the effect can and will fall flat. And it is this phenomenon that makes them worthy of study on the soundtrack show. The music is perhaps the most important, singular ingredient when it comes to making a successful horror movie. You have all of the the ingredients, but in terms of what is weighted as the most important, I would argue that it is music. So, our case in point today is John Carpenter's Halloween from 1978, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, when the edited film was first shown to an executive, the movie just wasn't scary. 
Here's director John Carpenter telling us the story. Well, it didn't work without the music. And interestingly enough, I showed it to an executive from 20th, but I didn't have the music on it. And she said, this is not frightening. There's nothing scary about this movie. He tells it again in the liner notes of the 1985 Erasy Saraband soundtrack release. Quote, I screened the final cut, minus sound effects and music, for a young executive from 20th Century Fox. I was interviewing for another possible directing job. She wasn't scared at all. I then became determined to save it with the music. End quote. He goes on to say, quote, My plan to save it with the music seemed to work. About six months later, I ran into the same young executive who had been at 20th Century Fox. She was now at MGM. Now she, too, loved the movie, and all I had done was add music. But she really was quite justified in her initial reaction. End quote. So, it's that famous piano music that builds and releases tension, that frightens us out of our wits. It is perhaps... The music that made Halloween the most successful independent movie of its time. A movie that launched a whole genre of imitators, like the aforementioned Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th films, and countless other horror films from the 1980s, including many Halloween sequels. But to really appreciate this score, we need to go back and give some context about the movie in general. I am very much a fan, as you know, of great behind-the-scenes stories— and I find the making of Halloween to be nothing short of fascinating. I saw my first John Carpenter movie when I was 12 or 13. It was called John Carpenter's They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, which is how I became interested as I was watching my fair share of WWF or World Wrestling Federation at that age. Anyway, I found They Live to be creepy, fascinating, and actually kind of like Halloween, pretty funny and campy in some ways. It was my childhood friend that showed it to me on VHS, and early on in the movie, I noticed this bluesy, repetitive nature to the music, and I made a comment to my friend about it, and he told me, actually, the director of this movie, John Carpenter, writes a lot of his own music. He directed the movie and wrote the music. So yeah, I was impressed. I still am. So I didn't see Halloween until I was in college, to be honest, and the thing that left the biggest impression on me as a music student, was how simple and how effective the music was, how it stuck in my memory. And in a way, I, I kind of knew the music because it was so famous before I saw the movie. I was like, oh, that's where this music comes from. I mean, in college, as a big fan of sweeping orchestral John Williams scores, I marveled at the psychological skill, the filmmaking skill, beyond the musical skill. I honestly didn't watch it again until I considered it as a possibility for the soundtrack show. Thanks to all of you who suggested it, by the way. And as I started to do research, what I learned was fascinating. And this research is what I'm excited to share with all of you. Let's start with the director. John Carpenter was born in New York in 1948, but he moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky when he was just five years old. He was a fan of movies even as a youngster, particularly of westerns and low-budget horror films. He eventually attended Western Kentucky University, where his father was the head of the music department. Aha! And then he eventually transferred to USC, the University of Southern California, and their School of Cinematic Arts in 1968. He made a few student films, and then he left USC to direct. After a couple of successful low-budget features, which he also wrote the music for, Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13, 
He was interviewed to make a horror movie by an executive producer named Erwin Yablons. When the horror project was described to Carpenter, with the original title of The Babysitter Murders, Carpenter's response was that he could do it for a mere $300,000, so long as he gets his name above the movie and has total creative control. Okay, for $300,000, Yablons immediately signed him. That was a steal. So, Halloween, for those of you who haven't seen it, is about this young boy who, in 1963, murders his older sister in cold blood. He's like not even 10. And he does it for no apparent reason. He's insane. He's evil incarnate. So, in 1978, 15 years later, on Halloween night, he escapes the insane asylum and returns to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, a fictitious town named after co-writer and producer Deborah Hill's hometown of Haddonfield, New Jersey. He then terrorizes a group of young teenagers who all seem to have babysitting gigs on Halloween night. It's campy, it's scary, it's creepy, and it's a cult classic. Michael Myers, the killer, wears this white mask, which, by the way, the crew found in a Hollywood costume store, and it's actually a Star Trek mask of William Shatner spray-painted white. Anyway, he's got this mask, he wears a mechanic's jumpsuit, and he carries a giant knife, and he starts to hunt teenagers who are, well, busy being late 70s teenagers. It's only the smart, alert teenager who's bothering to pay attention, named Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who sees that the boogeyman is loose in Haddonfield. And as a result, she saves not only her life, but the life of two children, like a badass, and a silver screen horror heroine is born. But the music. Oh, the music. Let's take a listen to the main theme of Halloween. This piece, and a dozen others that are like it, were all written for Halloween by John Carpenter in just three days. Three days. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the Soundtrack Show. Halloween. Newsweek magazine calls it a superb exercise in the art of suspense, the most frightening flick in years. Halloween, the Chicago Sun-Times says it's so scary, I would compare it to Psycho. It's the kind of picture, says the Chicago Tribune, that forces you to sleep with the lights on. A masterpiece, says New York's New Times. Halloween, from Compass International, rated R. With such a tight budget, now set at $320,000, Actor Donald Pleasance was brought in to add a recognizable name to the cast and was paid 20 k for five days of work. 
Now set at $320,000, the amount of time and resources for Halloween was mercilessly short. Four weeks of pre-production, which means write the script, cast it, get your locations, get your get everything together, your crew. Four weeks to shoot it, and then four weeks for post-production. That's editing, music, sound effects, everything. The movie, from script to screen, took 12 weeks. So, three days to score the film doesn't seem quite so ludicrous when put that way. Here's executive producer Erwin Yablons giving us his take on how long it took to make the film score. Now you say, how long did it take? Well, how long could it take? John had four weeks to prepare the film. He had four weeks to shoot it and four weeks to finish it. So (laughs) he probably did it while he was shaving. Exactly. How long could he have spent? So here's the thing. The reason I relate to this story so strongly is that I, I do my best work under pressure. Yep, yep, I'm one of those types. When there's a looming deadline, my fight-or-flight instinct kicks in, and I roll up my sleeves and produce what I need to produce. I've been this way since I was a kid. In fact, during busy weeks, some episodes of the soundtrack show are recorded, edited, mixed, and released on the same day. So even though I wasn't there when John Carpenter wrote and recorded the music for Halloween, I can just imagine him with his intimate knowledge of what he wanted to achieve as a co-writer and director of Halloween, sitting down and writing a score on pure instinct, pure instinct. Don't question it, just go for it. And this is why I think the score is special. He knew exactly what the film needed, and he did it in the most economical way possible. Has a film score done that quickly ever been so effective? I think it makes Halloween unique. Let's talk about the main theme. The first thing to notice is the odd time signature. It's not in a common time or a 4-4 time, which we've discussed before in the soundtrack show. One, two, and three, and four, and doom, doom, right? It's in an odd time signature. It's in 5-4, five beats per measure. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. But it's got a syncopation to it. So it's it's actually a big syncopation. So if you subdivide with eighth notes, you get this. One and two and three and four and five. One and two and three and four and five and one and two and three and four and five and speed it up. One and two and three and four and five and one and two and three. You get the idea. It's given to us mainly by the synthesized percussion. with this bass drum thumping on each beat. <laughs> the odd time signature keeps us, I think, a little on edge. It's unpredictable. It's, it's kind of unnerving. And it came from John Carpenter's father. John Carpenter was also busy working on another ingredient, the music score, which the keyboard-playing director composed himself. I had three days to do the score, and my father bought me a pair of bongos, believe it or not, when I was a teenager, which I never particularly learned how to play, but he taught me 5-4 time on them. Uh, 5-4 time, it became the Halloween. That's all that is. It worked. So I just did it on the piano, octaves, and put some synth strings and so forth on it. And right off the bat, you are out of balance. It's almost as if your whole mind is being short-circuited and played with because you're getting this fast, crazy, erratic music. With the music. 
it went to an incredibly other dimension. I mean, it was another movie completely. It was so effective. So now that we've discussed the rhythm, let's talk about the actual music. It's really simple. Carpenter referred to octaves, but he must have been talking about the bass line, as what you have here is a perfect fifth. There's my... I always use that example, right? With one of these notes being a minor sixth. One half step away. What that spells out when you add a bass line is a minor chord progression. It's kind of making you think that it's a one minor to, a, to kind of a four minor. One minor, four minor, that sort of thing. But here's where it gets interesting. He begins a chromatic descent here. All the chromatic means for non-musicians is that it moves via the smallest intervals in all of Western harmony, a minor second. This is the sound of chromatic. And so the theme moves from here to here. And then back. But here's the thing. When it moves down chromatically, it doesn't spell out that same clearly ringing dread of a minor progression. Let me play this for you. It's a bit more uncertain, as it spells out this kind of polychord when you add the bass. Kind of like this uh, F over E flat sort of thing. This is kind of what it sounds like. So it's a bit uncertain, a bit neutral, not as dread-inspiring. But then the dread appears again. But then disappears, or retreats. Then the whole thing moves down to E minor. And E flat. That E-flat is that retreat to the uncertainty of the polychord, now an E-flat over D-flat. Finally, after lots and lots of repetition of this and a chromatic descent, it arrives at B minor. Where it sits for quite some time and actually lets the bass line do a full walk upwards through a B minor scale. loops around again. So in that B minor, that's when it's expressed in its full maturity. What I think is inspiring about this is, again, it tells a really scary story. Great melodies tell stories. The fact that it's, first of all, played on a piano, a very homey instrument heard in many suburban houses. The fact that it starts up in a higher register up here conveying a teenage innocence disturbed by a threat, and then moves down as the evil bass moves up. Kind of taking over. It gives us the story, because in Halloween, Laurie Strode is constantly wondering if she's seeing things. This feeling of dread is conveyed perfectly by the piano as Michael Myers appears to her in the distance, you know. Oh, what's that? 
and then Meyer disappears. Oh, uncertainty. Okay. Did I just see something, or is it my imagination? We feel uncertain. We share that uneasiness. It isn't until we're towards the end of the film that Laurie knows for sure that there's something really wrong and discovers the killer that she's been suspecting for the entire movie. And it isn't until we're at the end of the theme that we get a matured version of the main title music, The Killer Revealed, that B minor walk-up. Great melodies tell great stories. And we know that this music is meant to reflect main character Laurie's point of view, as this same music is repurposed for Laurie's theme, the doctor's theme, anyone who isn't a victim, or obviously the killer, or the shape, himself. This is actually a feature of this simple, minimalistic score. title is repurposed for the most part as Laurie's theme. In fact, the whole film score is derived from the main title music. Or there's the slower version of Laurie's theme. And then here's the version of the shape, or what that's what Myers is known as, on the loose. It's just the simple thing in the piano in the bass, and then still on that F sharp. And then they add this synthesizer in the middle, which is, I mean, this is as dissonant as it gets. This is just a minor second played together. It's the oldest trick in the book. <laughs> Simple. Simple, 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 yet totally, completely effective. I get creeped out even talking about it because I'm remembering this movie as this music was playing. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. John is, uh, from childhood, from earliest days, one of his passions was scary movies. And when he got his turn, he... He drew from the lessons he had learned watching these movies, and one of the cardinal rules is don't, don't show too much of the monster. Um, one of the oldest tricks in the book is to understand that it's not what you see, it's what you don't see that gets you scared. It's about knowing something's in there, and when your character, for some compelling reason, must go in there, it's about anticipation. Where's it gonna happen? 
John often likened it to the idea of a jack-in-the-box. When you're playing this tune, which is awfully friendly, but suddenly it goes ah! in the episode, we mentioned that the movie was saved by music, according to John Carpenter. Well, this is where I want to revisit some of the subjects that we discussed when we covered Bernard Herrmann's score for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Number one, that rule that music must build tension. Number two, that rule that music must sustain that tension throughout repetition. Well, talk about repetition. You hear this music a lot, especially at the beginning of the film. Towards the beginning of Halloween, as Laurie is walking down a suburban street in autumn, we're shown the mundane, just like Psycho. It's just a suburban neighborhood with leaves falling, nothing special. And certainly, if you set this scene to some late 70s pop or disco tune, it would be a completely different movie. Instead, the beginning of the movie sounds like this. the key off at the Myers place. I won't. They're coming by to look at the house at 10.30. Be sure to leave it under the mat. Promise. Yeah, I don't like this. Now I'm worried about this character. I'm, I'm worried about every character. Later during the film, Lori's in a high school literature class and she keeps looking out the window because she thinks she's being watched by the shape. On the Blu-ray, we're treated to a documentary all about Halloween, and it features this scene with and without music. Let's take a listen. Fate caught up with several lives here. No matter what course of action Collins took... Just a normal teenager in a high school class looking out the fate. window. Did not have music. So it taught me a valuable lesson. It wasn't effective because it was all silent. But now we hear it with music. Ugh, I don't like this. Wait, did the teacher just say Collins and fate? Ah, oh, this movie creeps me out. Anyway, you get the picture. Like Psycho, we get a minimal score loaded with repetition. Here's another quote from John Carpenter from the soundtrack liner notes. Quote, My major influences as a composer were Bernard Herrmann and Ennio Morricone, whom I had the opportunity to work with on The Thing. 
Herman's ability to create an imposing, powerful score with limited orchestra means, using a basic sound of a particular instrument, high strings or low bass, was impressive. His score for Psycho, the film that inspired Halloween, was primarily all string instruments. You know, in a lot of ways, Halloween is a pure homage to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Jamie Lee Curtis is, after all, the daughter of Janet Lee, the star of Psycho. Donald Pleasance's character, Dr. Sam Loomis, is named after a character in Psycho, Marion Crane's boyfriend, Sam Loomis. Both Norman Bates and Michael Myers commit their heinous, insane acts with a giant knife, gulp, and the music features limited orchestration and a chromatic, repetitive nature. And like the shower scene in Psycho, Halloween has its share of musical stingers that are meant to make us jump out of our seats. John Carpenter refers to these as cattle prods, as they shock us into letting out a reaction. Normally, you hear these in Halloween when the main bad guy, Michael Myers, jumps out from out of nowhere, or when a murder is committed. For a film that cost $320,000, it grossed $70 million worldwide at the box office and has gone on to become a cult classic that inspired an entire genre. Beyond the movies of the 80s that it inspired, it was spoofed in the 90s by Wes Craven and his Scream franchise. Heck, if it wasn't for this synth-heavy score, we not only wouldn't have seen scores like that in the 80s, but we certainly wouldn't have the clever throwbacks to these scores that arrived in the 2010s, such as Netflix's Stranger Things. Okay, I'm all nervous now. I think I'll go watch a rom-com or something. Hey, do me a favor. Send me an email or a social media message of cute cat or puppy pics. Well, not really. I, I'm just kidding. I'll be fine, I swear. But send me a message to the soundtrack show at HowStuffWorks.com. Let me know what you think about the show. Or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundtrackShowHSW or on Twitter at SoundtrackHSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. Until next time... Trick or treat. Okay, I'm lying. I like to be scared.